tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Drunks propose to... (laughs) Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Drunks propose to lonely arcade mannequins. Daddy took a rain check and down. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Well, I just lied to y'all because it's not night. It's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. And what day is it, gentlemen? It's Christmas Day. No. No. It is uh, day two of college bowl games. Oh, that's true. There's football from 10 a.m. until after my bedtime. So it's a wonderful time of year. (laughs) Also, there might be some people that don't like football. There's some soccer games on, too, for some reason. Uh, Something's going on with that. Anyway, we have a very good album tonight. We have... An album from a band I've never heard of. <laughs> I joined. I have that sentiment. This You've band. Never... This band is, was not chosen by a listener. It was not chosen by a Jonathan Jmro. It was not chosen by me. It was chosen by T. And I was going to call him Power Pop T, but I can't call him that. Tonight, I'm going to have to call him Prog T. <laughs> sounds like something Godzilla would fight. <laughs> uh-huh. It does. And it sounds like something Godzilla would fight. This band is called Marillion. Mm-hmm. T, how many is a Marillion? <laughs> <laughs> Five? Is that right? I don't know. I'm Isn't going... this from Lord of the Rings? Yeah, it, it's... Yes, oh, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm going to let T explain that here in a minute. Yeah. But before... I go any further. I'm going to do an experiment with Jonathan J.M. Rowe. All right. And I'm going to watch T, why Jonathan J.M. Rowe <laughs> answers these questions, so that I can enjoy myself. <laughs> and I'm sorry this isn't on YouTube. Yeah, it should be on YouTube. Like the ladies, they're very sorry it's not on YouTube. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're going to watch T's expression as Jonathan J.M. Rowe answers this question about a band he just learned about a little while ago. Yep. Okay, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, question yep. one. Yes. What is that? That's a triangle. What kind of triangle is that? It is a uh, isosceles. No, it's, it's an equilateral. Equilateral, term. yes. You don't have to say equa. Um, anyway, that means that all the sides are or even. Equal side, okay. Yeah. Here's what. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a dot in the center of that triangle. Okay. That dot will represent this band, Marillion. Okay. I want you to tell me the three 
bands that are the closest, they will represent the angles, will be three bands. Can you tell me three bands that are the closest to Marillion? On, uh, they're on opposite sides from one another. So Okay. I am going to go with Genesis as one. That's a good answer. Okay. T agreed with that one. I didn't get what I wanted. Uh, all right. Here's what I... Go. Yeah, yes. Eh, not really, but I... Okay. Okay. One more chance to really make T mad. <laughs> He's naming prog bands, which uh, helps. And I am going... Go for it. Stretch. The Who, to a certain degree. I think think the Who more so than Yes. Okay. Now, when I think the Yes, the only Yes part I hear is the little... The, key, uh, the keyboard, keyboard thing. But there's a lot of those little, little, little keyboard things. That's why what I said it sounds that? like Rick Wakeman. What do we call that kind of keyboard play? Noodling. Uh, Rick Wakemaning. <laughs> Rick Wakemaning. Yes. Okay, T, now we're going to go to you. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for a question, T? I, I will try. You always throw a loop, throw me for a loop, but I'll try. That's what I do on my you openings. Do. I'm not nice like y'all. You're a loop. Y'all You're ask a loop the same thrower. question every time. T, mm-hmm. is this heavy metal? No. Okay, but I wanted are, you to be madder than that. <laughs> Why? Because I hear a lot of people say this is heavy metal, and I don't agree with them. I think the reason why people say that is at least earlier, Marillion definitely had a line. Well, it might not have been a straight line, a line to the all those new wave of British heavy metal bands like Maiden and Judas Priest. There is a hard. How come you just said Maiden, but you said Iron, all of Judas Priest? I don't know Iron Maiden because I'm friendlier with them, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, fellas, T says hi. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, no, I, the, because there's a hardness to that earlier Marillion that definitely sounds that takes its its tone from that era of British heavy metal. It's it's much more melodic. Well, Maidens can be melo- Iron Maiden can be melodic, <laughs> but uh, Marillion obviously because they're a synth prog band, uh, they are more melodic than that. But there's there is a hardness to it. So I get that. I don't. They're not metal, but I get people saying that. People call. ACDC metal, and they're not metal either. They're not metal. You know, I figured out where ACDC came from, but I forgot it already. I'll do another episode on that. Antichrist? No, no, I don't mean the name. Devil's Servant? No. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a, it's a band from the, uh, oh, the Trogs. Mm. Oh. They, they sound like the Trogs. Well, uh, with the little, with the little, uh, Satan voice. Not, not to deviate from what we're talking about tonight, but I've always thought ACDC was kind of the boiling down this, like if you were to boil all the excesses off rock and roll, that's what you got. The Trogs is the same way, so it makes yeah, sense. To I that. think you're right about that. And anyway, thank agree. you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, that's a, probably a really good outtake. Yeah. For, I don't know where we'd put that. <laughs> ACDC and the Trogs. 30 seconds. Okay, back to the business at hand. Mm-hmm. Which album are we talking about here? How many albums do they have before this? Three studio albums. Three studio albums, and now they have thousands of albums yeah it's it's funny there are two distinct eras of marillion is this the, the end of one era this is the end of one era there's the fish era which is this is the last album of that and then there's the steve hogarth era which came after this and is continuing and they've put out i, I don't know how many albums I'll, I'll be honest to the people listening i sort of lost interest after fish left and uh i do own their first album with steve hogarth and i've listened to other ones and they're good it just doesn't uh doesn't strike me as much as this earlier stuff one other question i want to ask um the album right before this one misplaced childhood okay so the question i think is how come we're doing this and not misplaced childhood it seems that misplaced childhood gets more attention am i 
a naive newcomer, or is there some truth to that? No, there's truth to it for a lot of reasons. It was a concept album in nineteen eight in the mid eighties, which was unheard of, uh, where all the songs are interlinked. It sounds like one long song. It's not, but it sounds that way because of the way the songs are are interlinked. And it had their two biggest hits, Kaylee and Lavender, on it. And it shot this band through the stratosphere. They started playing giant arenas and headlining and all this other stuff. In England or the United States? England and Europe. Okay. Yeah. No, they've never. I mean, that album did chart in the states, as did the single Kaylee. I remember hearing it on the radio when when and I there was, was a video of it. Yes. And nobody should be proud of that video. No. There, most of the videos Marillion did, nobody should be very proud most of music videos. But <laughs> the reason the reason why we're talking about this album is I've talked about this before. I like talking about transitional albums, debuts, or albums where some where something happens that changes things. And this is the end of an era. This album's, I think, the most accessible thing that they ever did. It's got it's a collection of songs. They are also linked together musically, some, but it is a, a definitely a collection of songs. It's their, I think, their most mature effort. The lyrics on it are remarkable. I think it's not my favorite album of theirs, but it's the one I think that deserves the most sort of talking about it. Which one's your favorite? I'm partial to their first album. It's, it's not as mature sounding as this. The musicianship isn't quite as subtle, but that's the stuff I fell in love with when I fell in love with Marillion. So I really, really like that first album a lot, but I, I understand it's nowhere near the musical statement. This one is. Okay. Now it's my understanding that this is a continuation in a way of misplaced childhood. Well, it's definitely, it's a continuation in the sense that it's a, it's very personal and sort of autobiographical, much more so than but the torch of, character continues through both. The of them? Torch character isn't on that album. What, what you're talking about was early on, they developed He's a descendant of the jester. Yeah. They developed this jester character that was sort of their mascot slash. Yeah. I don't know what you like the call uh, pure Prairie league guy that, or like Eddie from maiden or something. And he's represented on all of their fish air albums and torch. The only thing that really connects him with the jester is on the cover of the album. He's got a, got a Harlequin, outfit sticking out of his back pocket. So that's where people say, oh, it's got to be that Jester character. On Misplaced Childhood, the Jester's on it, but the main character on that is a small boy, on at least on that album artwork. But it runs linearly, I guess, nearly, whatever. It runs through all of four of those albums, as well as some of the uh, the live albums and stuff and the singles that Jester characters it's all It's like over the a place. weave that goes yeah. through. So tonight... Like uh, a web. For Marillion fans, they'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a, ladies and gentlemen, Alexa just notified me that the National Weather Service is giving us a freeze warning. Freeze warning. Freeze warning. That means warning. I'm going to be moving pots. For tonight? Place. Yeah. Yeah. I got ferns. Anyway. Um, I got ferns. This is a concept album, T? Yeah, in the sense that it's it talks about the same themes and there's a character running through the majority of the songs, the Torch character you talked about, which is... If we want to talk about the elephant in the room, is fish. He he says he used it to hide behind it, but it's very. He didn't hide very well. No, it's like somebody's. <laughs> it's like an elephant standing behind a telephone pole. And I've I've got a a question for JM and for T. My grandmother had three sisters. They moved to Austin from Huntsville, not Huntsville, uh, Smithville, and they all were big uh, track. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> long way off. <laughs> anyway, back then it was. I think they took a train back then. Isn't that cool? <laughs> anyway, they would go to the Paramount Theater and watch movies, mm-hmm. and they would watch uh, musicals, and they would come out of the theater with their arms locked together, all four of them, and they would be singing and dancing to the songs that were in the musical. Is this the kind of 
album that one sings and dances to after listening to it. <laughs> this is a no. This is, this is a depressing album, <laughs> melancholy album. I mean, I sing along to it when I'm listening to it, but it's not. It's just because I know it. It's not like I'm like yeah, when you know. Yeah. Okay, so we have a dark theme here. It, very. Yeah. The you want to go into that theme a little bit before we start tea, so that uh, people will know what they're in for. I guess it could t- touch a little bit about this, and then we can talk about it a little bit more when we delve into the history. But misplaced childhood was such a monster success that it actually impacted the band in a negative way. They started feeling pressure touring, and they started feeling pressure from the record label saying we need another thing. Felt a lot of pressure. They had to tour a lot in support of it. They felt a lot of pressure to do a follow-up. They weren't getting along very well when they sat down to start working on this album. There was a lot of substance abuse, alcohol, some drugs. And so that is the theme running through this album is this torch character who essentially is an unemployed gentleman from the UK who's living in the States. He's uh, you know far away from his family and he tries to essentially escape at the bottom of a bottle and other things as well. But mainly, alcohol is the main substance he's imbibing. What does his doctor say? (laughs) That if he keeps it up, he won't live to 30. Yeah. So we hear that. One thing I would recommend for people listening to this record is that you need headphones for this record. Because there's some some things you'll miss without it. In fact, I listened to this in my car nonstop and never heard the doctor until I was listening to it with headphones. Well, the one thing we did not mention when we talked about the triangle is Pink Floyd is a heavy influence on this band. It sounds like that's one of the things I have in my notes is that the, some of the production sounds like late era post waters, Pink Floyd to me. Well, if you if you look at their early album covers as well, the Jester character is on both Fugazi and Script for Jester's Tear. He's surrounded by albums. And on the first one, I think it's Saucer Full of Secrets. And on the second one, it's The Wall. So we'll talk about in this album where it's blatantly Floyd. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, that would be... Well, yeah. the um, speaking of those influences, this we have some people that know what they're doing with their instruments on this album. Mm-hmm. We have a remarkable singer. Let's talk about this guy's voice. And that's what Fish we're talking about. Yeah, Fish. And he has he's, a real name. Derek Dick. He, he, um, <laughs> so what's goes so, by Fish, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what's so funny. There, he doesn't like alliteration. There's, uh, yeah. He says, you know, there's a little bit of uh, difference as to where the name came from. But what he says was he had a landlord who used to yell at him because he spent too much time in the bathtub. Other people say it's because he drank like one. But anyway, he used to say once that nickname was thrown at him, he thought, that's probably a little better than Derek Dick. I think I'll go by fish. (laughs) So, yeah. But yeah, he's he's to me. I, I thought I came up with this on my own, but he's compared to. Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. I think he sounds like. I think he sounds more like Phil Collins. I do too. He does on this album. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. If someone said I sang like Peter Gabriel, I'd never stop singing. He does sound like Phil Collins, and I I think those two. I think Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel sound similar. So yeah. that's not a surprise. But on some of these songs, he sounds like Roger Daltrey. He does. Yeah. Uh, especially Incommunicado reminds me of It's Hard. <laughs> Yeah, uh, era Roger Daltrey right. with what's that, what's anyone that hit off can of that? sing? You what's can, that? Uh, him in his front? No, no, that's, uh, that's the one that <laughs> Pete Townsend sings. That one. You better, you better, yeah. you bet. I, I hear a lot of gosh, such a good yeah. yeah. But we're not going to talk about Jam. We're talking about Tony's well, song and, tonight. And and I think that apologies to anybody who are huge Marillion fans, especially latter era Marillion fans. Fish's shadow is heavily 
cast upon this landscape and it's we, we're gonna have he's to such talk, a poet we're gonna have to talk about him a lot tonight he's not it's autobiographical album that we can't resist it is point. but but as the band points out after he left he didn't have anything to do with the music he was a lyricist and he even says in terms of being a singer he says i was always a writer who could sing not a singer who could write so the the music's equally as important but again his shadow is so huge you can't talk about this album and not focus on him because of the subject matter. Yeah. and i the little bit i saw of him uh live looks like <laughs> he was quite a showman well he's six five Right. Jeez. And he early on, the, the a lot of the neo prog bands did the whole we want to embrace the early Gabriel era Genesis thing. So they wore makeup. He wore makeup and put on a show. And that was dressed he, like a flower. He didn't dress like a flower, but <laughs> I'm wearing my Genesis shirt. I'm wearing um, my. It's always about him. <laughs> yep. That didn't take long. Anyway, I have a plain white t shirt on tonight, ladies and gentlemen. He's doing his Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. In 1984. I think Springsteen wore a clean one. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up and there were quite a few chores that needed to be done around the house that I may not have been aware of this morning. <laughs> Those are my <laughs> the uh, anyway, back to the task at hand. As a person who had never heard of this band before and started from this is the most from scratch I've ever started. This is me too. Uh, uh, but uh, I quickly started enjoying this. This is the kind of music I don't like. Exactly. And I started liking it really really quickly. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with Fish's voice. Mm -hmm. And I I like the guitar. The guitar is over the top. Yep. It is flashy. And, it's, it and it's got the, yeah, I put, have in my notes, it has the tone only a mother could love. <laughs> the, <laughs> one the, of my it reminds least favorite me, guitar uh, the first song anyway, sounds like Todd Rundgren on Bad Out of, Bad Hell. Out of Hell, Yeah, which may be well, I had some affection for it, but yeah. I do like I do like guitars and and I'm not opposed to things that are over the top. Well, when you're talking about progressive rock, you're talking about even over the this top. album, which was much subtler than they they had been past. It's it's always well, it's this always is, over the top. Yeah, this is almost a prog album in spite of itself. And so, one of the things I hate about prog albums is. The music is in service of the ego, and like as as opposed to the other way around, they just the ego in service of the music. <laughs> well, the they want to make music that is beyond that. You don't care who's necessarily playing the song; you're, you're just trapped in the in the song. But it, as opposed to, I mean, a lot of prog to me is just about guys showing off. Well, we're players; we want to let you know we play. That, we can play really good too. Tunefulness be damned. It, we don't care. In its most excessive nature, it Which, is. Yes, yeah. ELP, Emerson, yeah. Lake, and Palmer, that kind of stuff. I get that. It is. And that stuff even rubs me, especially Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I rubs know, me yeah. It's just a way. bunch of I can listen to a lot of... I can, it takes a while for me to not want to listen to something like Close to the Edge, even as over the top as it is. But neo-prog bands, let's think about this. Those okay, guys, we're using a new term, neo-prog. Yeah. These are the uh, giants of neo-prog. I mean, this is the start of it. Marillion yeah. was the biggest, most commercial band from the neo-prog progressive rock. When did that, when did so that start? Weird to me. Early 80s. And it's funny because... So we got it 
put away and it came back? <laughs> I, well, it got put away by the music press. There were still bands making it, but the music press deemed it uncool. And that's the point I was going to make is these bands, these are young guys who listen to punk, who listen to new wave. And they're, that's not, not in this music. And that's what makes it different than the progressive rock that came so before. The importance of yeah. that is a lot of the punk was in response to two things. One was disco. And the other was progressive rock. Progressive yeah. rock. The, 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 the overindulgence of that musicianship. And early on, these neo-progressive bands did that, but they quickly started, when they started finding their own voice, they started moving more towards making things that had all of those elements of new wave and punk. Yeah. Not directly. It's not like you can hear punk rock, but in terms of the attitude, the song structure, things they were trying to do, it wasn't all about, as J.M. said, the ego of the musicians. It was trying to put this, this complicated music in service to telling a story. Mm -hmm. it, the songs are, for the most part, much more melodic than they a lot are. of the progressive yeah. rock you can stuff. You can quickly start humming these tunes you to can. yourself. Well, and there's just really cool, some of the and chords I, I, that they I had think, are just beautiful. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine this, but I think they would pass the kitchen table test if someone were to sit down with a guitar and play just, mm -hmm. just some the of the melody. songs. I think you're right. Some of it just doesn't even have drums. I mean, I, it's just like there's it's atmosphere. That, I, what, well, that's that's a big word to talk about clutching at straws. It is an album of atmospheres. And we, is this the first time we mentioned the name of the album? <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> maybe so. We, we might need to add something in a little early. Um, well, <laughs> what's, what's, what, what I wanted to make a point about with the progressive rock is what's really interesting about this particular point in time in the music industry is you had these young guys who loved that 70s progressive rock coming back and saying, we'd like to make this music, even if it's not commercially successful. And Marillion, oddly enough, bucked that trend and became commercially successful. But all the big dinosaur, to quote the press, progressive rock bands were making new wave pop albums. Those Yes albums of the 80s, you know, a big generator and was it 90210? With that owner of the lonely yeah, lonely. Those yeah, are, that, those that's, are, I could see that being and even lumped Rush, in the neo prog. Even Rush yeah. did that with Hold Your Oh, Fire there's definitely and, some Rush. I mean, Rush, I don't know who came first, Marillion synthesizer sounds or Rush synthesizer sounds, but, but it does sound like well, they, one of those Grace Under Fire. Grace um, Under Pressure. Uh, Grace Under Pressure. Thank God, you. Yeah. They, uh, they did tour with Rush for a while. That doesn't surprise uh, me. No. But yeah, so they, it's just interesting that these bands wanted to sort of return to that, but bring it, bring it a fresh sound when all the people that had been doing it for a while were moving as quickly as they could away from that sound. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Doug Cooper, the person who knows very little about progressive prog. Everything prog I was calling art rock because I figured that if it had keyboards that bothered me, it was art rock. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there other prog bands that take lyrics as seriously as this one does? I don't think so. I think the the thing that made Marillion stand head and shoulders above some of the other bands that were making music at this time is it's very grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. now, now, I yeah, say that. It's not, like, you're not hearing about trolls. With well, we're, we're talking boots. about later era Marillion too, because they did talk about some of that stuff. I mean, the first, the, their first did big... They go hopping on toadstools. No, not toadstools, <laughs> but their very first big single the song was Market Square Heroes, but the, the thing that got the attention of everybody at that time was the B-side of this 12-inch single, which was an 18-minute song called Grendel, which was based on that John Gardner book called Grendel, which is a 
Beowulf, wasn't on from, Beowulf. The, from the point of view of the monster. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah finally, right. someone takes his point yeah. of view. Did so, they ever get into Stonehenge? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Stonehenge. But uh, but Fish does wear a helmet on stage <laughs> at this time. So He's scared um, he's going to fight Daniel. Well, can you tell us how we go from the beginning to this album? How we finally got to this third album called Clutching at Straws, in case you uh, <laughs> didn't hear us not mention it earlier. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to bore people with a bunch of the history because it gets complicated. But essentially, as I mentioned, there's two distinct eras. We're going to be talking about the Fish era tonight. The, the fascinating thing about that is, again, this is a progressive rock band in the Fish era had four studio albums, every one of them a top 10 album. Their debut album, Top 10 where? In the UK. Okay. Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> but that's still a big deal. I'm um, not saying it's not a big deal, but I just want people I, to understand that because this may be a record breaker. As we, I thought it was the jam, but I think we beat the jam as far as the disparity between <laughs> the, the US and the UK. Yeah. And the Popularity UK. and yeah. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. But their, their debut album was number seven. Their second album, Fugazi, was number five. And then Misplaced Childhood hit the top spot. It hit number one. And then the album we're talking about tonight, Clutching at Straws, peaked at number two. So this is a band that had a lot of success right out of the gate, at least in the UK. So just to get to just early stuff, they they started out as, as a band called Silmarillion, as JM mentioned, which was named after the Tolkien book, which yeah. is the... The one no one's read. Yeah, yeah it's the ba- essentially the cobbled together backstory of Middle Earth that, mm. that Tolkien was working on that his son put together. And they changed it to Marillion. There's a little bit of difference depending on who you talk to. Uh, one side will say it's because they were pressured by the Tolkien estate. I don't think that's probably true. The drummer, Mick Pointer, he's not the drummer on this album, but the founding he was a founding member of the band, says he removed... They, they had lost two members, so he thought, well, let's just take the first two letters out of the name. But L. Marillion didn't really roll off the tongue, so he just <laughs> took the whole sill off. That's his story <laughs> anyway. But as I mentioned, Mick Pointer, who was their original drummer, was a founding member. Steve Rothery, who is the guitarist and has been since they were quote-unquote Marillion, was is the guitarist. Doug Irvine was the, was the bassist and the vocals, and this guy named Brian Jellyman were keyboards. This is in 78 they got started. By early 81... This Doug Irvine guy, the bassist singer, gets replaced by two people. This guy named Diz Minute, who was on bass, and Derek Dick, aka Fish, on vocals. They didn't. Ha- they were primarily a instrumental band. So Fish, who was a writer, as I said, decided to uh, volunteer to be the lyricist, which he did. They recorded their first demo with this lineup, and it included songs, three songs on it. He Knows You Know, Garden Party, and Charting the Single. Those all be sort of standards of the band. In 81, they get their first show at the Marquee Club, and at July of next year, they have a residency there. So this, this is weird. We're talking about 1981. Yeah. In London. 1981 in London, and a neo-prog band has a residency at the Marquee Club. Yeah, that is pretty <laughs> remarkable, because we've talked about, we've, we've been circling around 19, the England about this, and a lot of our podcasts recently have been, and that nothing like this was happening. This wasn't the happening thing. It was like the, the specials, the jam, the jam. You um, too. You too, yeah. I've climbed highest mountain. <laughs> that came so, later. Brian Jellyman leaves in December of 81 and Mark Kelly replaces him on keyboards. He's the current keyboard player for the band. And then Diz Minute, the bassist that came along with Fish, leaves. And Peter Truavas, whose name I'm never going to pronounce right, mm-hmm. is replaced on bass. He's the bassist. Um, and so that's in March of 82. In 83, they're touring the U.S. They're playing with Rush. So that was what the... Is that Signals 83? I guess so, but... 
I saw them on the Signals tour. And well, they, they didn't tour the whole time with okay. them. But, yeah. And then they end up playing their last gig at the Marquee because they're starting to get pretty big. And it's funny, they, they don't play as Marillion. I'm not sure they played their last year under the name Lufthansa Airport Terminal. <laughs> Been there, actually. <laughs> but they also they just didn't want to sing in English. Yeah, I guess not. Uh, they... At this time, just like a lot of other bands, they get a big break, get signed to EMI Rec. So the lineup at this point, the band is Fish is the lead singer. We've got Steve Rothery on guitars, Mark Kelly, Pete Trevallis, and Mick Pointer on. Let, let me ask you about the guitar players. Yeah. Oh, Steve. Mm-hmm. Is he on anything else? You mean other than... Did he ever play with any other bands? Or it, it seems like a lot of guitar for... It seems like there would be plenty of people wanting to say, let me have a little bit of that on my record. I, I'm sure he has, and I hate to say that I don't know what that would be. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a true Marillion fan and not just a semi-Marillion fan, <laughs> please uh, let us know the answer well, to that I, question. I think this kind of gets us into connection. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a siren coyote. Hand me my electric, uh, my electric <laughs> jug. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jane, you have some connections. Uh, I have a very loose one, and I'm I'm sure Tony's going to be able to fill in the blanks on this one. So the we mentioned Genesis earlier, and we have talked about Genesis. We did Nursery Crime. We did Nursery Crime. Yeah. Well, well that, that was, yeah, it was underrated albums. The guitarist on that album was Steve Hackett. Uh-huh. And the drummer in this band was Steve Hackett's. Drummer. Yeah. The drummer who took over for Mick Pointer eventually was, is a guy named uh, Ian Mosley. He was Steve Hackett's drummer. So, and it's pretty high praise. He was in Curved Air. Is that right? And we talked about Curved Air before when police. we were talking about the police. The police. Who else? So, Somebody else we talked yeah, about. Yeah, I think so. I think they've come up twice, but yeah. I don't have a memory. Also, they got a guy named Ian, which <laughs> means they're British. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. How come the Beatles didn't have an Ian? Oh, they they didn't have an Ian. They well, didn't John, even have John a manager is, named Ian. Ian. Ian is Scottish or Irish for John, so they did have an Ian. So, anyway, uh, connections. Yeah, I, I have one. Tony, connection. Yeah, so when the band finally goes in to record their single, which we talked about having the Grendel song on it, it's produced by, this is another Genesis connection, it's produced by a guy named David Hitchcock. David Hitchcock produced the album Foxtrot, by Genesis. Genesis. Yeah. So. Not Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. No, no. And I think it's important for people to know what this band sounded like, what Grendel sounded like. So I'd like, if it's okay with you, I'd like to play a little. Of course, it's okay. So that is Grendel. It's 17 plus minutes long, B-side. Uh, Almost as long the, as the book. Their first single. So yeah, that was produced <laughs> that, by that, David Hitchcock. And I, you can't really what, tell from- Who was it? Was that them? That was yeah, Marillion. That's Marillion. Okay, I thought this was some earlier deal. No. Okay. And, and I like that. 
And I wanted to make fun of it the whole time. Yeah, no, I get so. it. I, it's 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 interesting listening to this this the stuff. Guy, the guy's got a voice. He, he does. does. He has a great voice. It's interesting listening to this stuff. I haven't. I'll be honest. I haven't listened to Marillion a lot over the last couple of years. And listening to it, I felt very similar to you, Doug. This is stuff that was very close to me and I loved. But having a little distance from it, I can realize how goofy it sounds too. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, well, it's. It reminds me of Jethro Tull yeah. with a great storytelling voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I, I was enjoying it, but... The keys. I kn- it would be really cool to find out that he, it was all a big gag for him, too, like Meatloaf. <laughs> but uh, there is there is that prog element well, really it, over the top there. They, they stopped playing that song fairly soon after their initial tour supporting their debut album because they just realized it was very, very dated sounding, which may be a way of saying we couldn't, because he'd get on stage, he'd wear makeup and a helmet, he'd pull somebody out of the crowd and yeah. like play act with them. It was a whole to do. And at some point he's like, yeah, this isn't sustainable. No, he stopped wearing the make. I, I, I don't want to defend what I was doing at that age. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I, I don't want to full of, uh, full of crap. The, the, funny, and vinegar. the funny thing about that song was years later, the manager of Genesis heard it and said, hey, if I had been paying attention, I would have sued you guys at that point. Because it's uh, it's essentially, and the band admits it, it's a supper, Supper's Ready knockoff, which was the song off Foxtrot that was the whole yeah. second side of that album. And and they know it. They, they're yeah, but at that. least they called it. So I, I saw Fish in D.C. in the mid-90s play a really tiny club uh, for, for them. And somebody in the crowd yelled that out, and I thought he was going to jump off the stage and pummel him. I mean, he was had a good sense. What they yell out? They yelled Grendel to him. And he's like, "Who?" He goes, "Who's the jackass that yelled Grendel?" <laughs> <laughs> Except he used a different word. That's and, like calling out Old Blue for Will T. <laughs> anyway, it was just re- it was really funny. Uh, he did have a sense of humor about it, but there was no way good. he was going to play it. So. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So just to go just quickly to run through this. So they, they, their debut album comes out in March in 83. And it hit, as I said, it hits number seven. It's got six songs on it. The shortest is five minutes. Most of them are seven or eight. So this is still when they're embracing that kind of prog thing. Um, Fish, listening back to it, has said that he doesn't know. He was doing this really forced falsetto voice that he that we heard on Grendel. Yeah. And and he doesn't know how he did that. And he sometimes he was playing six nights a week singing like that. He listens to this stuff with a little bit of a of an older insight and realizes that there's a lot of naivete in it. But what happens is as they're touring, they realize this founding member, Mick Pointer, this drummer, just does not have the chops that this band needs. Every All the other band members, and if you listen to that early, the first album or that first single, the drums really are, they stand out, but not because they're good. And so hmm. they start looking for another drummer. They sack this guy. The only founding member still in the band and they kick him out. Found a good one. Well, what's funny is here's another connection. Oh, we kind of went away from connections, didn't we? Well, we're right back. <laughs> Sorry about Go that. Ahead, yeah. One of the people who re- wanted re-entry. to play, one of the people that wanted to play drums with them was Woody Woodswincy. Oh, really? <laughs> the spiders from Mars. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they all thought he was too old. <laughs> He was like 30 or something like that. But they're all young guys, you know, in their early 20s. They did get this guy named Andy Ward, who was in Camel, which was another symphonic prog band from the 70s. But he had some abuse problems, some substance abuse problems at the time that none of these guys did. Well, none of these guys did at that point. (laughs) And he had some emotional issues. I think he might have been bipolar. I don't want to speculate on that. But he ended up 
having a breakdown on their U.S. tour. You know who they were touring for, by the way? What year? This was 80, probably 82. I give up. Todd Rundgren. They were opening for Todd Rundgren. Really? <laughs> yeah. And here's a funny story. Evidently, they were playing in Toronto, which at that point was actually a pretty big place for Marillion. There were a lot of Marillion fans up there. And Todd Rundgren's stage manager comes out and says, we've changed the start time for you guys. And so they go out or they have to go out and play to a, essentially an empty mm-hmm. place because Rundgren didn't like the fact they were good press. Instead. <laughs> Total Rundgren move. <laughs> anyway, so as, as JM mentioned, they ended up getting Ian, Ian Mosley from uh, Steve Hackett to play. And they go into the studio and they record Fugazi, their second album, with this lineup. And this is the lineup they have for the next three albums. It. It was a tough recording process. They didn't know how to write songs together. They had to learn to write songs together on this album because they all had songs already in the process where as these guys started to band, they just started adding. But it hits... uh, They went through 10 studios and five producers on that album. And even though it hits number five, the record company wasn't very fond of it. I'll be honest with you. I think it's it's not one that a lot of fans like. I mean, it's... They like it because it's Fish and Marillion, but in terms of comparing, it's not. So there's there's a bit of pressure for them to go on and do something big. That's when up with Misplaced Child. And it's big. It's number one. Number one in the UK big, yeah. 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 Which that's that's important too. I, w- I want our British fans to know we think that's very important. And here is a here's another connection. The producer on that album is a guy named Chris Kimsey. Do you know what the connection is? Uh-uh. He also no. produces the album we're talking about tonight, too, Clutching at Straws. That's not the connection. He produced Midnight to Midnight. Oh, really? By the second By the second first. first, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> it's just a... It's, it's all just, my life's a circle. But as we... Uh, just uh, to keep me from... Stop me from yammering too much, I'll just wrap this up. Uh, Misplaced Childhood is a huge global success. They actually get chart in the states the song there's the singles chart in the states high up like in the i think in the 20s but still and as i said kaylee was kaylee and lavender were the big singles off that and and kaylee was got radio i heard it was 50 years old um but they start cracking at the seams they're playing big arenas in europe they're not playing next to nobody really each other when they're playing on stage they start imbibing in various substances. Uh, everybody's ego starts getting out of control, and particularly Fish's, and he admits this because he's the lead singer. People are interviewing him, and he starts to have a bit of an ego problem. So they go into the studio with this idea of recording a new album with this big pressure, how do we follow this place childhood? Whenever a band becomes so successful, that's always one of the biggest challenges they'll face is how do they handle success? And of course, we know all about that here at This Is Vinyl Time. <laughs> yes, I have to. I'm in a separate We've been able to humble ourselves using JM as an example. <laughs> we want to get into the album? T. Are we ready to get into very interesting? Yeah, I mean, just to reiterate what we talked about earlier, because it's been a while since we mentioned it. You know, there was a lot of alienation going on with the band members, and that is what Fish was trying to get at, driving at when he wrote these songs. Not a whole lot of substance abuse. Yeah, <laughs> and so, and you know, a bit of being someplace and not feeling at home. All of that is going through the songs on this mm-hmm. album. Yeah, this album is called Clutching at Straws. Mm-hmm. What is that term? Well, I think we don't really say grasping at straws. It's a weird sort of turn of a phrase, at least I think to Americans. I hesitate to bring this up because it could cause a lack of harmony between papists and Anglicans <laughs> who might be in the room. <laughs> but it okay. comes from Thomas More's Dialogue of Comfort Against Tribulation, uh, 1534. A drowning man will clutch at straws. 
I'm sorry for what we did to Thomas More. <laughs> okay. That's not, can we move past we that? We can move team? past it. Sure. <laughs> hey, you know, it's so cool being Protestant. Pa- <laughs> Papists are all about forgiveness, so it's fine. Oh, really? Really? What happened to Kramer? Oh, yeah. Burned at the stake. Thank you so much for this. Um, anyway, uh, so that's the theme of the album. Yeah, it's it a keeps perf- popping it's, up over and over again. And we have perfect. a drowning man, not literally, but he's drowning in his indulgences, mm-hmm. in his lack of responsibility. And they pull this off. I think so. I am going to surprise you guys and say, I think so. There are many things about this, and I'll get to this when we, when we talk, do our review, but I'm just, this was a very surprising for me. I'm surprised that. Anyone could pull it. So, T, tell me about the cover of this album. Mark Wilkinson was the illustrator. A lot of people don't like this particular cover because it's very different than anything else they did. <laughs> it reminds me of Heart of Saturday Night by uh, Tom Waits. <laughs> or how about <clears throat> In Through the Outdoor? I can see that, too. Okay. Yeah. So, he felt rushed. And he really felt rushed because the label said, this album is coming out on this date. We need to cover. So the concept is it's the pub is a Barker Arms, which is a real pub that I think Fish used to frequent. And Clochester. 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 That's where it is. Yeah. I'm practicing saying that because I don't say so that very often. The, the characters on it, you've got the Torch character who is obviously illustrated, who, as we mentioned, is a continuation of the Jester character. But then there are people, real life people also photorealistically illustrated into this cover. And the band, I believe, is sitting at a table in the back of the pub. Right. So on the front cover, you've got Robert Burns, who is a Scottish poet. You've got Dylan Thomas, also a poet. Truman Capote. We all know who Truman is. Yeah, he's is. done some work. And uh, Lenny Bruce. They're all on the front. And then on the back, you've got John Lennon, James Dean, and Jack Kerouac. The The front cover is supposedly people who were known to be vibrant, but also poetic. So that was Lenny Bruce? I don't know. <laughs> he was a poetic imbiber. Jack London, he should have been. Anyway, so it, a lot of people... Well, Hemingway was on something. They, they didn't like the... Uh, yeah. They, a lot of fans didn't like the fact that the label changed. I mean, the logo changed a bit. It's not as quite as painterly. It's more sort of neon-y, but it matches. It's supposed to be a bar. It matches. Yeah, you got to have your neon if you're in the bar. But so... so it's kind of like the college dorm room uh, folks that get stuck up on the wall it, except it, they forgot Shay. if you look at their if you look at their three other studio albums those are pieces of those are artwork this is not necessarily that but it's serviceable for what they're well and they they've got a story to tell yeah that's not the most important it's a, i think it was their first album that wasn't a gatefold which is also a prog thing <laughs> yeah i think all it's kind of obligatory you have to have a well you know i have yes gatefold. songs up here somewhere i think but what that thing kept folding and folding, and folding. <laughs> well you can't have a big table to put that on yeah but there's also there's other albums that aren't proggy that you have that do that like the uh What's his name? The one that is, makes a giant version of oh, himself. Oh, Dave Mason. The Dave Mason album. <laughs> That's hilarious. Like he's this big giant man on the, looking yeah. over a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of good lessons about what not to do on uh, <laughs> album covers. We're going to be talking about one pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, that's the album cover. That's the name of the album. And we start with a song that gets your attention right away. That song is called Hotel Hobbies. Short straw to kids by 
Okay, so we find ourselves in a bar. <laughs> if this was a sitcom, this would be like Cheers. You, this yeah. is what you'd see every Norm! Time. Yeah. Uh, except it's not a happy Norm bar. <laughs> it's a dark bar. No. And um, I don't think they had uh, hookers in the, the Cheers bar. No. Well, it's a hotel bar. Right. That's the and hotel bars are very rarely pleasant places. They're usually uh, there's some great I've ones. Been to some very, which, but it, not, but like yeah, maybe the Holiday the Inn in Ames, Iowa is not the, really. They attract the old guys like us, where everybody's on vacation and having a good time. I like mm-hmm. airport bars, but you know, I mean, most of the time, especially when you're thinking about this character and the type of bars he's or hotels he's probably <laughs> yeah. in, it's a lonely place. He's yeah. he's not with his family. He's far away from them. Unnecessarily dark. Yeah. Yeah. Lots it's a plush. Musically, this is, is just to bring up the ghost of Pink Floyd again. I think this is very kind of Floydian beginning. It's very cinematic. It's a cinematic it's very, way to yes, start the I, I'll, I, Cinematic is exactly the, the word I was looking for when I was trying well, to come up with what is this song. You, see, you can see this camera uh, scanning this bar room. That's that's the idea I've got. And yeah. I, I, good, um, good one of the things at. I wanted to mention early on, because we've talked in other podcasts about the romanticism of the heavy drinker, mainly with the Tom Waits album. This is this straddles <laughs> that line in a weird way. It's not really romantic, but no. the it is not this, romantic. It's not at romantic, all. but there's something about well, he, his response to that doctor is what a romantic way to go or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I think that in, when and we that get that song, ar- I think, ironic. I think when we get that song, I mean, it I, is. y'all ever see that movie Barfly? Yeah. With that rem- yeah, that reminds this. <laughs> That's Bukowski, right? Yeah, it's based on Bukowski. I Every think. time I when I was listening to this, I mean, I didn't get it. Eventually, I just went, "Oh my god, this is Barfly in Prague." Well, it, it, it's the underbelly or Iceman Cometh kind of stuff. It, you know, it, yeah. This isn't a happy bar. No, it's not. It's and a, he's at happy hour and he's crying. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, well, and it's not, there's not only alcohol involved here with a little turn of phrase, the short straw took its bow. I'm guessing that's a uh-huh. little, little toot of coke. Well, you don't have to guess because it says uh, star spangled clouds of <laughs> yeah, cocaine on the mirror. Yeah, that's true. But I think this is a great way to set the stage for this. this well, I mean, the thing is, do. it's so, album is so surprising to me because the themes and we've talked about this earlier, it's just, it's not prog theme. It's not how beautiful England is or how Middle Earthy or there's nothing that's nothing. It's not. Space. It, Don't forget space. Yeah, is yeah, a yeah, prog space. Theme. There's no aliens coming children <laughs> of the sun. <laughs> what? Uh, I mean, I'm not. I'm, this I'm, is I'm the one where the guitars got my attention right away. I, I really like that. Yeah, the guitars are coming in. And the marimba thing. I don't know if that's actually keyboards or what, but just I love how that, what you said, a cinematic beginning and that marimba. uh, (laughs) That's the iPhone ringtone. (laughs) I don't want to not talk about the bassist on this album. Oh, my God. He's amazing. He's He's one of the, and that's one of the things I'm going to say about this. He's, as a bass player, he's he's in the the pocket. No, he he is in the pocket. He does not do that weird, I'm a guitarist. I'm so mad that I have, he's, he's right in there with that. They, they must have just been. I I guess where I'm talking about is he adds atmosphere to these songs. 
in, he plays melody lines. He adds atmosphere. He's not as busy as someone like Getty, but it reminds me of what Getty does to some of the later later era Rush songs, where he's adding melody lines. When I say later era. I'm talking like moving pictures and stuff. Yeah, where there's a melody line to the bass playing. He gets Getty gets busy. He does he, not get unnecessarily busy. Sometimes I think Getty Lee gets a no, little I get unnecessarily it. But busy. But it's the same. It's the same kind of bass playing to me in that it's it's adding layers mm-hmm. to rather than just rhythm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he they they are these guys are definitely all good players but what i love is that he pays attention to the drums i got it much more than a lot of frog players they all say when ian mosley joined the band they had to up their game and they instantly became a better band and like i said this is i don't want to keep ragging on mick pointer but when you listen to early early and you can tell that was it was probably horrible playing with that guy so i guess bass players do make a difference after all (laughs) i apologize to everyone out there aren't you gonna i want to be noise when we talk about bases i want to be a, a representative for all bass players that you can. I'm, I'm quite you sure don't have very to be a excited about yeah. that. So the, the other thing that's that's the big elephant in the room in terms of prog songs is this is a three and a half minute song. Most yeah. of the songs on this album are not, again, they're interconnected. You you go, it's difficult. It's hard to tell when they. I know that was one, one of the things the that I was like, oh God, I got to figure out. I, where had, I, um, yeah. I had my. CD handy at all times to check what song am I on? Yeah, yeah, and and it's and it's that's the way you need to listen to it because if you listen to this online, it's going to have that weird cut, and you're uh, not going to be able to tell how how fluid these songs flow in, in and out of each they other. Do. Yeah, and and I like that. I think that's how all albums should be if they're <laughs> if they're connected properly. Yeah. Anyway, next song this this will be appreciated by all those waitresses and bartenders out there who are so conscientious about getting coasters out under everybody's <laughs> glasses uh, i've always wondered about that but apparently there's condensation that develops leaves a ring on the on the table <laughs> and we have a song called warm wet circle so before we get into the song, I just have to say, um, Mark Kelly, the keyboardist, when this song was brought, well, like when Fish brought the lyrics and the title of the song, his response was, if you want to kill a song stone dead, call it one with circles. <laughs> <laughs> My thoughts exactly. Uh, well, what's weird is I thought about <laughs> rings on the table immediately. Really? I thought it's, about it's a, I, boom. It, it's, I guess it's because it was set up by the previous song. I yeah. think because it was uh, Prague. I just thought there was some sort of like mystery place mystery where place mermaids where come yes, from. Yeah, we come <laughs> no, from a warm wet circle. But again, talking about a song grounded in reality, he's the, there's all sorts of things alluding to the beer, the beer rings, kisses, hugs, a bullet hole. He even mentions a bullet hole yep. in reference, I think, to John Lennon. A bullet hole in Central Park, obviously. Oh, yeah. And then other other things as well that we won't get oh, yeah. into. Oh, yeah, I'd be cool. Be- Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, just, just read the lyrics to us. That's the same. <laughs> to the muted journey home And the group rests on another queue Last night's here picking up his juice A honeymoon gambled on a ricochet all right, so two things. Um, 
this, if you had told me this was off a early Phil Collins as lead singer Genesis album, I would have said yes, that's. And the second thing I will say is I normally hate that co- compressed guitar sound, but it works so good on this album or, or, or this album, but this particular song. This song is, I think, his most Phil Collinsy. Phil Collinsy, especially Phil there's a Collins point. Onion. Yeah, there's a point where he sings that she nervously undresses yeah. in the dancing. He sounds so much like Phil Collins. There, it's it's kind of makes you take take a step back. I, I do want to though talk about. So we mentioned the torch character, and and what we the part we listened to made me realize that part of the song is about that guy returning back to his, where he grew up, and there's all these people that haven't moved on, and they're you know when he talks about the hero. Last night's hero picking up his dues is all these people that are still caught in this sort of this uh, very sort of small world, you know, where this guy the night before was probably telling stories and getting getting everybody laughing or he did something, you know, and all of this. And so he comes back and he feels even more alienated because he doesn't have anything in common with people either. Well, they do a a pretty good job of uh, wrapping up about probably 1230 at a... (laughs) At a small bar. He does a pretty good job of telling everybody's story and giving you a a sense of what's going on. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, we were talking about Barfly and Bukowski. I mean, sometimes I just went like, if Bukowski could play instruments really, really well, this has probably been album that he would have made. Yeah. I think Fish probably fancied himself as that kind of a character a bit. Yeah, I I think so. it, It does seem like... I don't know why everybody has to bring up Kerouac. Rock and roll. Well, I like the way he does it here, and we'll talk about that when he does, because yeah. I think it's yeah. kind of interesting. But I, I do think there's a lot of people that want to be Jack Kerouac. <laughs> yeah, I don't realize. More it. than uh, Hunter S. Thompson would be my mutton to be Jack Kerouac, who actually misses a lot of what Jack Kerouac was, which <laughs> yep. was not taking himself seriously. Thing so this was a single. It peaked at number 22 on the UK singles chart. It was their um, ninth top 30 hit in a row, and it was on the charts for four weeks. So contrary to it being called Warm Wet Circle, it did okay. It's a beautiful song. It is. It's beautiful. It, it is. It is uh, another one of the co- coffee table things that a guy could play with a guitar and entertain yeah. people yeah. with, with yeah, everything definitely. else taken this, away. This could be... Somebody sitting might need to be a 12. <laughs> I'm okay with that. You know, supposedly, so this was, the music was brought in by the guitarist, Steve Rothery. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a weird time signature too. That's a, yeah. What is a time signature? I, I, you can add that later. <laughs> and then, uh, and then fish based it on a night where he was at a pub by his parents' house drinking and just kind of looking, looking around, around thinking yeah. I don't fit anymore. Yeah, who, do, who else did we talk about that wrote that way? Where he's sitting, sitting and kind of observing. observing what's well, that going was on. Uh, Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler does that yeah. a lot, and I think Tom Waits does that too. But uh, Tom Waits is more character. Knopfler's more observational. Yeah. Well, and then is, you got. Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say this is kind of a little of both of those columns. It is. Yeah, it's both, and that that's not uncommon. Then we got this. That time of the night, the short straw.
Clutching at straws. That's true. And the short straw is the guy that loses. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that's some, it's got some really nice keyboard work on this one. This is, that's the thing to me that stood out on this. It's a nice little rip once that, so it's a pretty long intro, almost two minutes of yeah. just kind of atmosphere. Which I'm a sucker for. I love it when they do that kind well, of I stuff. I do too, but once the song kicks in and you get that swirling guitar part mm-hmm. over that little nice little keyboard riff, I love that yeah. part of it. Uh, like bell-like, those keyboard, I guess, I mean, had this been recorded 50 years ago, I would have said those were bells, but I'm pretty sure those are just keyboard. Yeah, well, and it's got some strange stuff. Stuff going as well, keyboard parts wise. of it sound like a pop. Song. Yeah, well, and I think that that you know that that happens as these bands who are so intent on being over the top musicians. I think they just get that just wears them out after a while, and they start they start bringing other elements in that you know have influenced. Yeah, but this is I, I like I like this song. I mean, it's it's a perfect title for it because we've all I think we've <laughs> probably all been there where you're sitting around after yeah. You're that there, there's that certain point in the evening where you're kind of looking back on what transpired and, mm-hmm. and, and you can't turn off the little voice in your head and it starts talking to it. That's usually the next morning for me. But he, uh, Fish says that this was his, essentially, if you listen to the lyrics, this is his resigniz- resignation letter. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, because they had been out on tour. They were arguing all the time. They were playing these huge gigs. And he just, he hated their management. And after this al- after this album came out, well, at, at what kind of the breaking point was he said, uh, he said, it's either me. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. He did not, wow. famously did not get along with the manager. Yeah. He, he likes to point out how right he was because that manager got sacked not fa- fairly soon after that. <clears throat> I've never heard of uh, a principal player in a band getting well second. To the manager, <laughs> I think. I think what actually happened was he sent a letter with a bunch of demands. He he probably wanted out, and the band was probably looking for a reason to get rid of him. I mean, they at, at the time, and I think they would all look back and say this was a very naive thing to think. He hadn't been involved in any of the music, and I think they thought we don't need him. He's ir- he's not he's not irreplaceable. And Fish has even said nobody in the band is irreplaceable. Like they've done well without him, not as well, but they have done well without him. So well, we'll never know. <laughs> It's, it's that other, uh, the control universe where we can find out what would have happened. Right. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Up next, Going Under. What's this song about? (laughs) Well, it's about the Torch character sort of talking about his concerns about his drinking and his detachment for reality and, uh, you know, his wanting to sort of, it's, it's that, I think what this album does well, this, the song and the next song talk about it's, it captures that moment where people are struggling and trying to look for a way out, but they, they really just are unable to make that step. A habit that I just can't shake off. The all these songs have this little thing at the bottom of them mm-hmm. where it talks about a place. Yeah, supposedly everyone's dedicated to a particular pub or bar. Really? Yeah, that's huh. interesting. That's I a, didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that earlier. <laughs> well, this one's uh, Saint Al- It's uh, Albert Street, Allsbury. Allsbury. Yeah. If you're from, uh, that's where Merlin, That's where Merlion started. We'd love to hear more details about these bars. The Mayflower I, Hotel in New York City. I, I don't know. Uh, 
you know, Fish talks about how he he likes to write in pubs, and we'll talk about that when we get to one of the other songs in particular. Well, that's helpful if this is your topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was not... So, this is a little bit of a violation because anybody who bought the 1987 vinyl version of this album, this song was not on it. Yeah, it's not on it. Yeah. This is a bonus track. It's on every version I've ever known, so I was a little surprised to find, to find out that it was a bonus. This was a bonus track. Uh, but well, how old were you when this album came out, Tony? I was 17. Oh, that's old enough. That's the age of consent. You should have known. I should have known. <laughs> well, I bought it on CD, and it was always on the CD, so... Um, well, of course, Jan, JM and I had never heard this album one bit, so we were not one to talk. Yeah, yeah I didn't own CDs. Yeah, I, I traded a television set for a CD player because <laughs> I thought it was such sophisticated technology. Yeah. Later, I found out that I had mistaken, made a big made mistake. A bad, yeah. Made a bad yeah. bargain. Supposedly, this song was improvised in the studio on the spot. They, the music. I can. I mean, there's the no lyrics. drums on yeah. it. It's, um, just, it's it, 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 it's one of the things I. Still, it's a synthesizer tour de force. It, it's just a lot of synthesizers. The guitars are <coughs> are pretty cool on yeah. it as well. But it's um, sort of again, sort of Floydian in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in terms of atmosphere, I guess that's the real Floyd part of a lot of this stuff is the atmosphere. Well, this was also about the time that... Um, well, Material Lapse or Reason yeah, came out. Military, yeah, There's a lot of overlap as far as product, production, sounding stuff. I mean, the drums are a lot better on this one production-wise than uh, what was going well, The lyrics are significantly better than Momentary <laughs> Lapse or Reason. Oh, Not one of Gilmore's strong the scenes. worst albums. <laughs> worst well, dogs of war. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> albums like that that helped us appreciate Roger Walters' uh, <laughs> lyrics. I always appreciate Walters' lyrics, but yeah, you're yeah. right. Um, well, we leave that song and we go to the Marquee Club in London <laughs> and we hear Just for the Record. I love that song so much. <laughs> it is catchy. This uh, definitely is one of my favorites on the album. It's another song about addiction. Well, it's yeah. it's what's great about it is he's he's laying out all those sort of, for lack of a better term, lame excuses people give, you know, about yep. quitting drinking. And then when you realize, and the whole, just for the record, I really, I don't have a problem. Just so you know. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. It's, it's for inspiration. Yeah. And you know what? I I just realized listening to this last night. I don't. This so. This is just like a shock to me. The guitar in it is. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but man, it sounds like Bold as Brass by Split End. That 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 whiny yeah. guitar in the beginning hmm. of Bold as Brass. And I kept thinking this reminds huh. me of something. And well, well, the guitar is definitely different on this. The the listen to, the, listen the to Bold as Brass, brass yeah. and you'll know what I'm talking about. This reminded about. me of Genesis. Uh, it does remind me of <coughs> not so much Phil Collins' yeah. Genesis as Peter Gabriel. Yeah. It, but it's definitely like a Steve Hackett era, yeah, guitar plan. It's really to me. It's the most immediately like, oh, this song's great song on. Well, this and it's, album. It, the the time signature is weird. I'm, it I'm, is weird, isn't it? It oh, is. Done the whole record. It's yeah, weird. but this one is in particularly, and and the bass which could have gone completely nuts on this just stays right in the pocket with the yeah. with the 
the drums on this, which I think really makes this like that could have gone. It could have gone a much different way than it did. And kudos to the bass player on this one. <laughs> kudos to the bass player. Well, I just I just think the lyrics on this this particular mm-hmm. song are just really great. I mean, they're great on the whole album, but this song yeah. always uh, just grabbed me. A little yeah. turn of phrases. Yeah. He uh, is this, yeah, like I said, it's one of my favorites on the album. Well, and then we go to the Hilton in Vienna. <laughs> and and that there's a reason why it's in Vienna, too. That's right. There's there's something bad happening. Uh, we get outside of this guy's life we and we take a look at the broader world. Uh, this is a song called White Russian. White Russian. All right, so the dude abides. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> this has um, nothing to do with that, but okay. <laughs> I, the way that the, this is what the, the, I was listening to this today. Actually, I, I was running, and there was just like a little epiphany that I had. It's like all of these songs really sound like they're all pri- like this one starts off with the wind sounds on mm-hmm. the synthesizer, but also kind of fl- a Floyd. Thing. Yeah, which all, yeah, exactly. And then I'm like, yes, it sounds like the, you know, like a, a sub Siberian winter, you know, mm-hmm. gulag kind of camp or whatever. And then I was like, wait a minute, he's talking about booze. And it, it's, it's just a, a, I mean, it was a, a, a little bit of an epiphany that it just went, these guys, this fish guy's got a little, he's a little bit of a tongue in cheek in, in a lot of these songs. Like to me, this is a, even though it's about addiction, even though it's about, you know, uh, being in pubs, I mean, obviously, but it, it this is one where I went, no, he's not talking about uh, Bitor and the snow dog or anything. He, he's, this is stuff that is um, down to earth. He's talking about drinking. Tea. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you go. <laughs> go ahead, T. This is no, no, own. no. You go. Well, we're talking about Austria, and we're we're talking about actual events, and I guess that's why he's in Vienna watching this. Yeah, it was inspired by the election of Kurt Waldheim, <clears throat> who was elected as president. Who was of, a known Nazi. Uh, well, the the funny thing, not funny, haha, but the funny thing was that he was the Secretary General of the UN prior to this. Many, I mean, he hid a lot of that history when he was elected president is when all that started coming out. In fact, I believe the US like had no relations with him as president right. while yeah. he was president. Right. And there's anti-Semitism going on and <laughs> Uzi's on the corner. It's, it's so ironic that Uzi is the gun famously from Israel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's doing that on purpose or if that's just, uh, I think it's, I think it's because Uzi is, well, it poetically, it sounds good. Yeah, it's, pr- it. it's probably that, but, but that's the first thing that caught my, I, I have a question for you guys though, as the more music mu- musicians, the people than me, it, is it, is it, uh, is it a polka or is it a waltz? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a polka and a waltz. <laughs> Is it in a, three four time? Yeah, there's parts that are in three four, but there's parts that are in like seven eight. I and, don't know, and it, I, and it I, has I, a weird sort no, of. It's in seven eight. It's it's got like a whatever it is keeps or you or seven four. Yeah, it, it keeps you from re- relaxing. Well, which and I of think course that's is the point. Its intention. Yeah, it, it is odd in that it does sort of 
as you mentioned earlier when you were bringing it up, it sort of pulls you out of the the main storyline to kind of make a, a comment, if you will, on world events. Yeah, and I'm, you know, what I was saying earlier was just like when I heard saw the name of the song "White Russia and Gaul." Yeah, it was the first time. Oh, this is all about drinking. I didn't realize all this. Well, I think it. I think it works on both. I really do think yeah. it works on both levels. Um, so you're not wrong. Uh, I think the on the on the very sort of surface obvious point, he's talking about world events, but he's also talking about this. He could be talking about this character who's sort of trapped in this world as well. Yeah, it seems that he's opposed. To what's happened, <laughs> which Doug another, is always another is, brave stand. Doug is well, always in favor of I, being opposed. But how great is that line? I don't know what this line means, but I love the line about sitting on a barbed wire fence racing the clouds home. Yeah, I, well, I, and it ends with racing the clouds home yeah. over and over. And well, over I love again. the way the song ends, but I don't know what that means. Sitting on a barbed wire fa- fence racing the clouds home but it's a cool it's a cool line well you know i that that was the line that i went well he's talking about trying to get home before he passes out i think i think he's maybe he's thinking i gotta get out of here and uh oh he's because he's, he's, he's sitting literally there looking in up australia, watching those or austria he's yeah, literally no. in austria so i would like to apologize to our australian that fans was a, that was a, a, a tongue slip well, that's we don't we embrace our english speaking family so, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So he's sitting in the bar, seeing what's transpiring. Well, he's on, and he's going, I, I got to get out. And he's watching yeah. those clouds head uh, west, I imagine. And he's going, I need to beat. Yeah. Jeez. I don't know. That's pretty good. But it's it's, uh, it's compelling. Else. It's yeah. very compelling writing, yeah. which. Uh, I'm not the best at interpreting lyrics, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, here, you're here for the looks, Jay. Yeah, you're here. You're here to track. You do purdy the place up, so. <laughs> yeah, he's going to believe that, and he's going to go out tonight trying to play drums. Well, you're playing drums, and no one will see you. Yeah. Even the bass player will have more people looking at her. Am I wrong in, because I'm such a, I mean, I'm not a sophisticated person when it comes to stuff, but am I wrong in that there's not, there's also sort of a little bit of kind of a reggae thing going on here, too? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think you're right. That the drummer is definitely is it doing syncopated. That. Is that what is reggae? Maybe, I don't know. But uh, well, we hadn't talked about reggae in British bands in a while. I thought I'd throw that in. Well, anyway, we're going to leave that. We're leaving Vienna and we're getting back to London and well, we're we, going to the Rainbow Room. And on the LP, we oh, we're be flipping it over. Flipping it over. That's it's right. I'm so I'm so modern. I forgot about LPs. <laughs> and, and 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 what do we always say about first songs on side twos? It's, it's a hit. A hit. And, and in this case, it is. I think I had heard this song before, actually. Uh, it, it, it was vaguely familiar to me. And so, the name is? Uh, Incommunicado. So he's able to talk about being famous in the first line. I guess this was a hit. If it wasn't, it should should have been. No, it, it was did. a hit. It, it was a it was a top ten hit, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was a top ten hit in the UK. It actually hit number twenty four on the US uh, album really? rock charts, and it was a top forty hit in Ireland, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and West Germany. West Germany. It's weird to say that. That isn't is. It? But, yeah. <clears throat> 
This is the song that Fish says was the most sort of inspired by what the Who was doing in the mid seventies. He I wanted them to do something yeah, very this, Who-ish. Yeah. I this song to me, it stands out like a sore thumb on this album. Really? Yeah. It sounds very different than anything else on this album. It sounds uh it's upbeat. Now the lyrics aren't necessarily upbeat, but the song is upbeat. It's it's sort of bouncy and uh and and it's got the most sort of over the top keyboardy part on it. I don't know. It's just it's always stood it's always stood out to me. The album. I, I, I agree. Know. It's nothing like the others. And and the fact that he talks about how conscientious he is about imitating the Who's, uh, that that's that came to me immediately on this song. And not just the music, but his voice particularly. Hmm. It. But as you as you guys said, I, I don't know how nobody how how you listen to this and not say this is the obvious single off this album. He thought it was. Fish thought it was. The rest of the band didn't. The producers like you guys are nuts. This is the single. So yeah. it was the first single that came off, and of course it was a big hit. Well, look, at, I I like this song quite a bit. It's I almost thought it could have been the first song on the album, but the the harmonizing of the guitars and the keyboards on this. I'm, I'm a sucker for when they do that. It is so good on this. It's hard to see how this pushes our story along. It does, yeah. It does. Right. It's the same. It's very similar to White Russian. Is yeah. it? It's a kind yeah. of you're taking a step out. It, it does, That's another reason it always sort of stood out to me. Well, uh, the other, there's a lot of things. It's almost like a little miniature opera. Again, goes back to the Who thing. It's, it's got the overture at the start of yeah. it, and then it, it ends basically with the same way that it started. And well, and and I know I've never been famous, but I, I always find it a little disingenuous when people are complaining about all this stuff. I mean, I get it; it can tear your world apart. I shouldn't say that I don't understand that, but well, you know, if we had ever gone to YouTube. You would know what these people. It's it's we're like the Moody Blues who are smart enough to keep our faces off album covers. Yeah, <laughs> and we've we've been smart enough to keep our faces off of the. Otherwise, yeah, we walk out that door and mobbed, 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 mobbed. by the three fans. and all the people that haven't mobbed us. We want to appreciate y'all now. <laughs> but but you're right, Doug. This is this is a song that does not move the general storyline. It's a break. You know, we talk about needing breaks sometimes, and it. I mean, while it's not necessarily happy lyrics. It's yeah. not quite as down in the right, you yeah. know, as the rest of the, and the rest of the stuff is. Every concept album we've talked about starts unconcepting on side two. Yeah, it's hard to keep that yeah. that thread going unless you're Pete Townsend. Yeah, it does. There's are parts of yes that I could see on the the keyboard sounds on it. Yeah, it's yeah. the it, it's the most sort of self indulgent like roundabout. Keyboard, yeah, you know, keyboard sound. Yeah. Well, but that sound is still kind of new back then, so it was fun. <laughs> and now we go to Virgin Airways seven four seven at Newark Heathrow Airport. The Torch song. I like this song. It's it's by Prague standards. It's loose, which you don't really hear a lot in in Prague songs. And it, it's uh, the band gets to kind of um, show its stuff a little bit, but it's again, it, it's not indulgent. I mean, they really do do some pretty 
neat stuff on this, but um, this is the one where the doctor tells him, uh, "Yeah, he's about he'll to die before he's going to die before thirty. Yeah, he so he, the this is the one thing. that you need to listen to with your headphones but, because you you will not hear it on the uh, if you're listening to it in your car. When you mentioned Kerouac earlier, he references Kerouac and mentions a famous quote of Kerouac's from On the Road, but. What I like about it is he flips this on its head. So the quote from the Kerouac quote is the only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, delirious of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like the fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. And in the middle of the, you see the blue center light pop and everybody goes, ah. Or, ah. So, but what this line, the line in this song is, I read some Kerouac and it put me on the tracks to burn a little brighter now. Something about Roman candles fizzing out, shine a little light on me now. That Kerouac quote isn't about fizzing out. Nope. And, but this guy is inspired by the quote, but then realizes this ain't, uh, this is not sustainable. Well, he has the uh, advantage of knowing how Kerouac ended. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. And I like that. I think that's, I think no, that's clever. Yeah. I, I, I like it too. Uh, this guy obviously was a reader because mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Every if you uh, do a little investigation, he takes you back to a book very frequently with, uh, <laughs> with his different quotes. Uh, Mark Kelly, the keyboardist. Who, to be fair, he and Fish have had a kind of an up and down relationship. They're fr- everybody's friends now, but he he didn't like the little bit in the middle with the doctor. He said it was cliched and over dramatic, and he said, "Look, the guy the guy carried on." Even after this, and he's still with us. So come on, how realistic could it be? But I think he's missing the point of the character in the song. But well, yeah, I think any very th- that's a Pink Floyd deal. Yeah, that yeah. that doctor deal that that was pure. If if anyone told me that was, um, I would not inspired by Pink Floyd. I would not believe anything else. Especially nineteen eighty seven Pink yeah. Floyd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like we can't come up with something weird. We got to come up with something just factual. a little pin. Yeah. All right, so. Uh, I like that song. I do too. I do. And um, it's also the double kind of double meaning of Torch song. Leader, the main character is Torch, and then of course then the Torch the, song. It it does help us move our narrative along. Yes, it, it does, does absolutely. very much. And uh, we go to the Oyster Bar in Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Sorry, um, I'd like to apologize to all the uh, people in the motherland <laughs> for saying that wrong. Um, T, I'm gonna let you say the name of this song. You want me to say the name of it? I want you to say the name of it. Slange Navarre. Okay. Thank you. Anybody wondering if I cannot read, I invite you to look at this written. It's uh, it's Gaelic. Gaelic. So let's Slange Navarre. Always want to be Kate Bush. Okay, I need help. Those guitars remind me so much of something. Is it the police? It's you two. <laughs> it reminds me of the police more than Does it. The, yeah, it reminds I think me of you two. It reminds it's me that, of walking on the moon quite a bit. Yeah, it's first maybe thing it's. It sounds to me like that sort of weird delay thing that the well, it's definitely got some di- but digital it, delay. He's not as indulgent as no, the he's edges. not. Yeah. But but yeah. the whole song, in a way, seems like Marillion was listening to a little U two and alarm or something because it's a it's an anthem. I mean, the musically, it's an anthem. What does that phrase mean? And the, it's definitely an, an anthem. The 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 phrase. Slanchnava uh-huh. means uh, 
it means good health. And the reason why oh, that's so nice. kind of that funny. cooler than good health. <laughs> the reason why it's kind of funny is because the song is essentially head. about, you know, all these people telling him how miserable their lives are and all he can say to them is, well, okay, good health. And he said that that's not an uncommon thing in Scotland when somebody will come up to you and tell you about how miserable things are. And the only thing you can kind of muster after that is, well, slange na va. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think I might start saying that. Yeah, this is my second. Practice this is my second favorite song on the album. Can you maybe guess what my first favorite is? Oh, okay. Well, this is my second favorite song on the album. Have we gotten to your favorite one yet? Well, I'll, I'll let you know when. We... Okay, that means no. So it's probably easy to pick it out. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's, a, that's just I, the, yeah. Last straw is my favorite song. Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> this was a big concert. Like when they toured I for this album, this, this was, got the crowd going. And I think they might have even started their set list with it a couple of times. I'm just, um, I'm a sucker for huge keyboard car- chords. Yeah. Whenever uh, somebody hits those just huge chords and starts walking down, and it's all it is, is the same chord. He's just going down the whole, yeah, the whole scale. It's, it's amazing. I, I absolutely love it. Um, it, it's a it's a cool song. They released a live album after this called "The Thieving Magpie." I can it was see a double this. album, and it sounds great on <laughs> it. <laughs> it's a great song, but it is sort of it's weird because of the subject matter. But it is one of these things you could see the crowd like throwing yeah. their fists up in the air and trying to say that word along with the band. <laughs> I mean, there's people that have tried doing songs like Pink Floyd has tried later era. Pink Floyd have tried doing songs and they just fall on their face. They do a really good job. You mean, what do you mean, like us? Uh, like, just those. Those chords descending uh, yeah. and just um, getting the, the the guitar, just doing all those digital delay stuff. Which, yeah. We've talked about Floyd so much, people might are going to think know, this is a Floyd episode. Floyd episode. But I'm, I'm a guilt, more guilty than anybody bringing them up. It's kind of hard not to. But yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a. I want to say it's a fun song. I guess it is for this album. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's it's got it's one of the more dynamic ones. It's the one well, that switches. In the end of it, he sort of switches gears and starts talking about. The First World War, yeah, as well, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's in general. If I if I could hazard a guess, it's just sort of about taking a nonchalant attitude to the trouble. Yeah, um, maybe akin to that, um, you know, sending your prayers to somebody, but not actually to fix the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is this is how you know he's telling the truth about where these were written because we're going to the Holiday Inn in Milwaukee. <laughs> And nobody there. would lie and yep. say that that's what they were doing. Yeah. Sugar mice. I was flicking through the channels on the TV On a Sunday in Milwaukee in the rain Trying to piece together conversations My favorite song on the album, and it definitely passes the kitchen table test. It is. This is so my favorite pretty. song, also. Yeah. This is easily one of my favorite Marillion songs. It is ever. so. It's so pretty. And it, it, it's a connection. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? We have another absent father. Oh yeah. Yeah. It brings us back to Nielsen, and it brings us back to Tim Buckley and Nielsen. 
with the the absent father, but this is the first one where the father's singing about his own failings. This is a heartbreaking. Oh God! I, I, if, if you need your heart broken, I was listening I, to. I this. recommend this song. It was cold today when I was running this morning. It was cloudy, and I was listening to this song, and I almost broke down crying because I did not realize the. I had not listened to the lyrics. I didn't realize it was about JM. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this song, it's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's so, it, it's so damn sad. It is. Daddy and, took a rain check is such a succinct way Daddy of saying Daddy took a rain, I mean, that first, like, that, yeah, the first time I heard it was today, that line, well, Daddy and, took a rain check. I just, well, in the, uh, you know, where he says, uh, if you if you need me, I'm number one. My, my address, address is number, is number one, one down at yeah. the end of the bar. God, that, that, and this is a guy who feels awful about leaving his family but he's not doing anything to rectify it. He's you know? clutching at straws. Clutching at straws. But, yeah. you know, that's even wrong because he's not trying. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's making an excuse for himself. And it he is. And clutching and it, at straws is like what a I mean, drowning kind of like, man does to try to save himself. Yeah. What's that? Um, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, they, they, he nailed this one. I, I, don't, I can't believe this song isn't covered. A drowning man will clutch at straws. It is said that the straw, in this case, refers to the sort of thin reeds that grow by the side of a river. And this, I guess he didn't, this isn't autobiographical because he didn't have a kid have or a anything, kid, yeah. but he's, he's observing this and others, I guess. Well, he did say that he, um, during the song, he, uh, so... This was written on a rainy Sunday afternoon. I'm guessing at a in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, um, and he does. He did. <laughs> he survived. He did have. He did have a. Uh, he did have a, a wife, and um, and I don't know if it was his kid or not, but she had a daughter, and so he did. He said he was missing missing his wife and daughter, and he called to talk to him, and it was a stilted conversation, and he felt terrible. <sighs> And he felt really alone. Now he's not, not this, helping. He's not this guy where he's doing it. He's, <laughs> right. He's on tour with the band. He's yeah. working. And he's a rock star, so anything he does is okay. Yeah. And and it's called sugar mice because it's uh refers to candies, which oddly enough, I made some and brought tonight. So I cannot uh, yeah, I didn't um, understand what the hell he was talking about well, when he was talking about sugar mice. Well, you look it up on the intranet well, and you do a image search, you can find the sugar but, mice. But the reason it's called sugar mice is because it's about essentially about how transient we all are. Are. And and in this song, you know, sugar mice in the rain. You put one out, and you, the things I made, you pour water on them, and they'll dissolve. Well, I noticed that you brought them over on a sunny day. Yes, for I one, thank you. Yes, and they were wrapped in plastic, even though it's cold. But, I, yeah. I I do want to indulge since I'm the one controlling the sound. I want to play something that I have to play because it's just pure D remarkable. So I'm going to do it real quick. That's right. That solo is remarkable. It's the best thing on this album, guitar-wise, I think. It is. It. I, I love all the guitar on this record. This podcast has, has done two things for me. It's helped me start to like music that I passed over before with contempt and learned that I was the one with the problem. And the other thing is, it's helped me realize how much I like guitar music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is a guitar. This is a, another guitar album. It's not. 
exclu- it's not as exclusively guitar or as heavily guitar focused as some of the others we've done, but yeah. there's no way you can listen to this album and not be struck by guitar playing. The thing that strikes me with that particular solo though, it, and this is, I, I hate to bring up Floyd again, but it sounds like, it sounds like Gilmore and in particular it's, and I don't know if this was unconscious or not. It sounds like the solo in mother. It's that melodic and it's, it and that's a big compliment because that's the thing about Gilmore is you can sing his solos. They're so melodic. And this solo is incredible. There is, this guy and, and Gilmore have a lot in common. Uh, I wish he would. And on, on this particular song, I, I loved how there was less effects yeah. on, on a lot of the playing, which is one of the things that Gilmore later years, he did that chorus. He compared. He, he, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to apologize. We've never talked about this before, but I have a rescue shelter for basset hounds at my house, and that's what you just heard. It it, it interferes with the podcast, but from time to time, I guess my heart's just too big. (laughs) Anyway, this this is you're talking about Gilmore Jail. Yeah, he the Gilmore. I think relied on that compressed sound a little bit and this guy relies on the compressed sound a little bit but the way that he did it on this song is remarkable and it's just heartbreaking the whole song is heartbreaking this this was their second single on the album and it hit number 22 on the uk singles charts um i would think there would be a large number of fathers who would not want to hear this yeah Yeah. well it's definitely yeah it's uh it is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The, the very poignant point you make about how it's told from the point of view of the dad, which makes it even more hard. Yeah, like you can find me. Reason. Yeah, what, what, what's the deal? You can find me at the end of this bar. Yeah, like, like, what do you? What's the problem? And well, he's he's carrying a lot a load of guilt with him, and uh, I wonder if some of the fathers who were written about in in other albums we've covered it would would agree with the point of view of this father. Yeah, probably not. I would think not. This this guy sounds like he would do anything to undo it. Yeah, but he's trapped at the bottom of a bottle. You know, no excuse. But that's that's the facts of the matter. Whereas I think the other ones we've talked about just got up and left because they couldn't handle it anymore. Well, I mean, the the justification for this guy being gone supposedly is he's out of work and he's over in the states looking for work. So there's a a bit of nobility to that. It's just he hasn't handled it right. Right. You know. Well, there's. Uh, well, anyway, he's he's been quite frank with his shortcomings. Mm-hmm. We leave that song. We hop on a greyhound and we tour North America. And we have a song called "Last Straw," in keeping with our theme. Yeah. What's the last straw about? Well, I think the line in it that says, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, kind of sums it up. It's about this guy who is, it's kind of, unfortunately, a very nihilistic way of looking at things. This is a guy who sort of ends up in the exact same place he was trying to claw out of. And again, he's clutching at straws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is it? Clutching at straws. We're still drowning. So he knows. The last straws. I mean, yeah. He's, he's got his last one. Mixing metaphors. Yeah. But um, 
anyway, uh, it's a good way to end the album. I mean, I say good. It's not a happy way to end the album. I guess it doesn't technically end it because there's a bit after Well, there's a happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) From St. Peter's Arms, we have the song Happy Ending, T. Well, hold on, because sample, I had to find it real quick. I don't think. And ladies and gentlemen, like all good albums, this one has a happy ending. It's called Happy Ending, St. Peter's Arm. And that was <laughs> Nothing at all, Pink Floyd, about that. <laughs> um, th- that was added because the label wanted the album to end on an upbeat note. So Fish goes, okay, we'll put a song called Happy Ending on there. That, and uh, That sounds like something a smart aleck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's eight seconds long of exactly what you just heard. Well, T, yeah. you have stretched the boundaries of Doug Cooper with this album. And Jonathan J.M. Rowe. I have enjoyed myself listening to this record. I, I do think that I listened to this record in preparation more than any of the other records that we have listened to. And uh, I feel like I really got a good handle on it. And uh, I enjoyed a prog album. Yeah. yeah, A neo-prog album. One, one of the reasons I picked it, though, was really because I had you and Jam in mind. I Aww. wanted to make sure that it was something you'd enjoy. If I'd picked Script for a Gesture's Tear, there'd be a different reaction. But uh, well, that makes me want to listen to that one. I knew you would love, I knew the lyrics would grab you. So. Yep. Um. <laughs> well, and the artwork. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do we know who is uh, is the the... Uh, torch on the album cover. Who who is that based on? I do know. I don't know what his name is. I can put it on the website. It's based on a. I think an old. I saw. I saw it someplace. I'll, I'll put it on the website. And I was wondering why he's barefoot. Oh, I don't know that. I just know that the the visage is based on somebody like somebody real. Is I it just, because he's dead? I don't know. Like Paul is dead. Oh yeah. Yeah. Didn't when he barefooted on Yes, the, he is barefooted on Abbey Road and they say that's because he's <laughs> And he has a coffin nail and twenty eight if and yeah. ne- never mind, ladies and gentlemen, we're not gonna go into all that. P A U question mark on the cover of uh Now T you really brought us into modern times with this record <laughs> as opposed to some people who are stuck in nineteen seventy one. Let's do it. Uh, it'll make I'll make it quick. It's all bad. Uh what yeah. happened after this record? So they actually tried to make another album, even though things were pretty fractured. Um, this album, as I mentioned, peaked at number two. So they're still very, very popular. One place below Miss, uh, Misplaced Childhood. It actually is listed at uh, Rolling Stone's 50th greatest prog albums of all time. It's number 37. But as I mentioned, they were having some issues still. Um, the next album was a real mess. Uh, every time Fish would go to try to write, there's just a bits of music, no, no real songs. Bob Ezrin was actually tapped to produce their next album. And when he came in to listen to what the band did, he's like, there's no songs here. And just was not interested in that. Mm. So that's when Fish wrote that wrote a letter of demands, one of them being that the uh, manager gets canned as a bunch of other stuff. And they just decided to move on without him. They said that he says he never officially resigned. They say they accepted his resignation letter. So it's it's a weird thing. But I they, just been through that. Yeah, <laughs> they uh, exactly. Yeah, you have. And so uh, they tried to find a new lead singer. Again, I mentioned that they thought, hey, he wasn't involved in the music. This will be easy. It was a lot harder than they thought. And they end up getting a guy named they named uh, Steve Hogarth. And they put out an album called Seasons End which is basically a bunch of the songs they were working on with Fish. And that that's the lineup they've had since uh, since Fish left in, in 90. Steve Hogarth's been the lead singer, and they've had several, several albums. One of the things I forgot to mention is Mark Kelly, the keyboardist, for one of their albums in, I think, 99 or 2000, 
crowds crowdsourced it and they were the first rock band oh, yeah. to actually crowdsource an album and which is now yeah they crowdsourced a tour didn't well they? the tour was done by the fans that's why they thought they could crowdsource the album because they, they couldn't afford to come to the states and so and out they, of the blue the, fa- the sixty thousand dollars fans just started them. started an account to pay to come get them to come to the states and then he thought well maybe we could fu- we could get out well, of the label i see them uh, yep. Yeah, I, I mean that—that's pretty. Cool. I, I wonder if we could get to uh, Canada um, <laughs> and do a podcast up there. That'd be cool. Yeah, Canadians, if you want to yeah. crowd crowdsource, crowdsource us up there, us up to um, Canada. But then, and then, fish made several. <laughs> Maybe we could crowdsource us. To We've stay already done here. one yeah. podcast indirectly. We could threaten. We could threaten to go to. Canada yeah, we could pay us to keep, pay to keep us out of Canada. <laughs> keep us here. Um, you hearing us, Randy Bachman? The. Uh, just real quick, Fish also did, you know, he his first solo album was uh, called Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors. I really like that album a lot. It was actually on EMI. It's the only one of his albums on EMI. They held off on releasing it because it was going to come out at the same time, the Marillion album. They didn't want them to compete against each other. But um, as I, I've actually recommended the last Fish album on the Rush episode we did, he's not supposedly not making music anymore. And that was his last album. Um, it's really good. Go back and listen to the uh, podcast. You Who writes the music for those? Uh, he's got a bunch of people that help him out on that. He's got them. <laughs> But anyway, so that's it. Jonathan J.M. Rowe, we have approached the part of our show where the people want to know. Ooh, I'm running out. Right. Your review. All right. So um, you want to hear from your head, Andrew? Yes. So I'm going to give critic rating first. It's a very good album. It is, I would say, if I were just like a Stone Cold critic for... 4.0. I, I, the thing that I think I would detract is the production. I think it's just a little too 80s sounding. There's the guitar parts, the synthesizers, the um, double track vocals, the drums have that explosion drum sound that drives me, that was just so huge in the 80s. It, that drives me crazy. Um, you know, like when the snare just sounds like an explosion rather than just a, a snare. Um, so, but other than that, but the songwriting is incredible. The playing is incredible. So critic four four dot zero. My personal rating is going to be very difficult because I've been listening to this album, I guess for three weeks. And the first time I heard it, I, I could not stand it. I, I, I was just, this was, what is it? This is just so, what has Tony made us listen to? But I kept listening to it, and every the second time I listened to it, I went, "Wow, actually, okay, there's some good parts in here." And so, anyway, the the long and short of it is, I'm going to have to spend more time with this album. But I think as of yesterday, I'm going to give it a personal rating. It's going to be a four zero. This this songwriting is amazing. The it's a nice tight structure. the The way that the production enhances the song is 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 really good. I mean, it it does not the production does not detract from the songs like I thought that it would. If you had told me <laughs> that this was like a Rick Wakeman album or a Steve Howe album where they invite a guest vocalist and the guest vocalist is Phil Collins. I would have said, yeah, that's exactly what this album. When, but it, it's much more than. Yeah, I th- that the, the thing you described sounds horrifying to me. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I thought it was the first time I listened to it. Like, okay, this is going to be a Rick Wakeman album, Wakeman album with a guest vocalist. And again, I, th- I said this is this is a prog album almost in spite of itself. Um, Neo prog. 
yeah. Neil Prague. So yes. anyway, yes. Tony, I got to say, this is, you, you've dropped some big ones on me and this was, this is probably the most pleasant surprise I've had. So well, long time listeners will realize you're a much better person than me because I have salvaged or savaged some of your albums. And so I feel very <laughs> guilty right now. Well, this is much better than uh, Paranoid, but I, I have a feeling this is going to be on my playlist for a while. Oh, so wow, cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go to me next because I didn't pick this album and T did. Uh, as a critic, I think I give this a four or five. And I also, as a critic, would say I'm in no position to judge this album because it's so far out of uh, the things I listen to. So if you are a Marillion fan and you want to write in to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, please be pre-warned. I agree with you before you try to confront me with that. And also, we are still looking for someone to say something tacky about JM. (laughs) On on a personal level, I enjoyed this record. Uh, I've started to really enjoy listening listening to things outside of what I'm used to since we've done this podcast. That may be the biggest payoff, despite the enormous amounts of money we've made doing this uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, we can, we can, actually, we can Scrooge McDuck it. Uh, Doug's got a big pile of money in his shed back there, and we go and swim in it after the mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the best thing about doing this podcast has been stretching and when you get to uh, your fifties, you don't, don't you don't stretch. stretch for music anymore. You're stuck in your deal, and you don't. Accidentally, I found a way to really start appreciating new music like I never did before. And uh, I hope people that are listening to this podcast will purposely go to albums they haven't heard before and uh, try to get into them because it's been a huge benefit for me. It's a good thing about having Tony in this podcast is he's listened. To extensively to albums I completely ignored. Uh, So on a personal level, I I give this a four and I will listen to it again. And uh, I've been edified by uh, my exposure to it. T? Yes. Do you have anything to say about this record? Yeah. You've said this before when you're talking about it. I think, in fact, when we were talking about the J.J. Kale album, maybe is when you were talking about how much it's part of your DNA and it's difficult to be objective about it. This album is that way for me, uh, personally. It's it's such a part of who I was when I was in high school and into early college. I loved this band so much, and they seemed to be kind of... Uh, it, it was this, oh, they're playing music I love, but it's new, and I can look forward to these albums coming out, and it was kind of a neat thing. So, personally, I give this a 4.8, but... Going, going kind of a different direction to what you've said, at least from music that I pick, I find myself being a little bit more critical about that stuff than I was when I listened to it earlier. I agree with you. You, you and JM have picked a lot of stuff that's kind of surprised me that I've ended up liking because I dismissed it so readily early on. But I was listening to this album and I, there were things about it that sort of rubbed me in a way that didn't before. And I guess because I just, I've been so um, divorced from it for such a long time. So critically, I'm going to give it a four or five. There's just a couple of things that seem slightly dated to me. I think I agree with JM. Some of the production seems a little too stuck in the eighties. Um, every time I would find something, it was a little bit of a, I'd listen to lyrics and go, well, this is why I love this album. But uh, yeah, so four, eight personal four, five critic. Very good. <laughs> well, looks like we're all in about the same neighborhood yep. on this one. So We'd really like to hear from uh, our audience to tell us what you think. And uh, also, uh, we know there's Marillion fans. 
that would be very <coughs> capable of telling us the things that we didn't mention that are in, that we should have mentioned. We like to hear that too, especially if you're from the UK, and especially if you have something negative to say about JM. <laughs> uh, usually at this time, we get a a recommendation, and for those recommendations, we generally turn we uh, go to T T. Yes. Do you have a recommendation for us this evening? I understand you're very excited about this. This is the most <laughs> excited T's ever been about a recommendation. This is an album from 1992, so it's not new. It, 30 it, years it, old, yeah. It, it, it is, um, and the reason why I was excited about it is because this is not a recommendation for the week at of heart. <laughs> this is Prague with a capital Prague. This is a 1992 <laughs> album by a Swedish band called Anglegard. And the reason I'm recommending it is because I think anybody who listens to this might just want to give it a slight chance to listen to it. It's mainly instrumental. And when they sing, they sing in Swedish, but it is, uh, this album blew the top of my head off the first time I heard it, but it is different than what we've been talking about tonight. So I just give you fair warning, but try to check it out. I'm going to play a sample by, a, and I'm going to mangle this. I'm sure all the tracks are in Swedish and I'm sure this isn't how you say it, but Kung Bore um, is Kung Bore. The of this particular song. So enjoy. So that was not the part I wanted to play because it's so monotonous. But <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if you can, if you'll just imagine midgets dancing around. I'm gonna play another part of the song. Midget aliens. There we go. There, hey. there we go. Elves. Midget uh, alien elves. God, I'm trying to find. I'm sorry. I'm trying to find something representative. Okay, Are you enough. sure that's not a Celtic band? I can't watch, I can't watch these guys anymore. Uh, here's another song just to give a little taste. Okay, I'm not going to torture these guys anymore. Doug looks like he's about to punch me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was one of anyway, my favorite Anglicard, it was uh, the album's called Hybris, which is a alternate spelling of hubris. Um, but, well uh, named. <laughs> it will be recommended. That's my middle name. You, Yeah, I bet it is. It will be uh, on our recommendation. Uh, and I apologize to Anglicard and any fans out there. <laughs> It's an album worth listening to if you like progressive rock. If you li- if you like clutching at straws, you probably already know the album. But if you don't, give it a, give it a listen. All right, there, Tony. Thank you. All right, thank you for joining us on uh, another episode of This Is Final Tap, the podcast that always goes to eleven. Um, if you would like to spread the word about this podcast. Be sure to tell your friends about this show. Anyone that likes the LP format, uh, we'd really like to get the word out. 
And we're also available on any of your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, and the ones no one's ever heard of before. Yes, yes. Uh, Rhapsody. And if you're inclined, please leave us a review. Leave us some stars. Let us know what you think about this podcast on those platforms. We're also available via Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. Be sure and follow us there. And we're on uh, Facebook via a group page. And of course, if you're old school, you can send us an email at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. And for the ultimate This is Vinyl Taff Experience. You can get the latest episodes, past episodes. You can find all sorts of stuff up there relating to episodes. Cool Uh, content. Cool content. Videos. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Go to our webpage, tappingvinyl.com. It is unbelievable. Tony does a great job putting... Uh, stuff together for us up there. And you can also leave us comments. Let us know what you would like for us to review in in a future podcast. Next week, we're going to be looking at premier session guitarist who has uh, also done some amazing soundtracks, but has also put together some of the some of the most amazing music uh, in the early 70s. Ry Cooter and his fantastic album, Paradise and Lunch. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11, and reminding you, don't stop clutching a straw. For a fool, 